Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, considering that this is the last uh, week of August. Hard to believe that we are at this point, but it is here whether we uh, like it or not. I don't mean, I don't say that in a wrong way, but as I've said before, that um, too often time moves by very quick, and it's up to us as individuals as to how we choose to exercise our time uh, to the best of our ability. So I figure that, hey, I've got the time. Why not um, podcast, but why not be back on the air right now? So here I am uh, getting ready to do another uh, podcast segment episode uh, with you all, my fellow 101 listeners, to uh, David Curtis Skaggs and uh, Gerard T. Altiff's uh, Signal Victory, the Lake Erie Campaign of 1812-1813. Well, I will tell you this much. Um, in this upcoming um, episode, we're going to be learning um, about various um, U.S. naval officers, including the roles that they will uh, play. For some of them, their names will obviously be mentioned more than once. Uh, for some, um, their stories, um, for some of us, we may have already learned about some of these people's uh, names, but for probably a good number of you, you may not have heard of the names that we will be um, discussing in this episode, and that's and that's okay. Uh, sometimes, you know, we hear about one or two, but that's it. But more often than not, we do have to be reminded that other officers uh, stepped up to the plate, no matter how big or small the task was before them, to uh, make a difference when it really mattered most. So uh, we will uh, be learning about uh, whom um, Navy Secretary Paul Hamilton chooses to become, or rather I should say we will learn um, whom uh, U.S. Navy Secretary Paul Hamilton chooses to have um, become the uh, Great Lakes uh, Fleet Commander, uh, we will also learn about um, what Washington um, wants in terms of levels of expectations, in terms of how many ships should be built within a specific time frame. Um, we will also learn about um, where the ultimate place lies for where the shipbuilding itself will take place. Because there are a couple of different uh, proposals and there are a couple of uh, different locations that we will find out where shipbuilding has begun, only to find out that there is uh, some form of communication that is not relayed uh, properly to those whom are above in terms of rank versus someone from below whom got the first um, official news of uh, notification. So I think it'd be fair to say that even in the uh, Republic's early years, that is, of the young United States Republic, that even communication has uh, presented its uh, share of challenges, especially in a time of war. And I think we should be reminded that even when we're not at war, communication can um, cannot always be 100% consistent. You know, even in today's uh, digital age, where we have so many um, accessories in terms of how we communicate, Sometimes messages don't always get relayed like they should. Sometimes people have tendencies to live in the moment where they sometimes they'll just say for themselves, well, it's really not my place to relay this information to so-and-so, and if they have to f find out from someone else, and that's just the way it is. Well, 
that's not always a good thing. Um, to me, communication, while there's nothing wrong with the text, um, but at the same time, there does need to be direct communication, whether it's by phone or in person, face-to-face, -face, because, uh, you know, it's one thing, yes, to get the information in a text, but when it comes to um, dealing um, with someone face-to-face, -face, you're not going to always be able to uh, look down at your phone and and see if an answer is going to come your way. So we have a lot of ground to uh, cover in this uh, next uh, podcast uh, segment episode. But before we begin uh, the episode, I will just say once again that I want to thank all of you, my listeners, for just, you know, showing interest in, um, in what I've been able to present uh, to you all, uh, not just right now, but really in a sense over the last three years. And I'm not saying this to flaunt. I'm not saying this for attention. Uh, I say it because, you know, with all that's going on in the world, yes, we do need to um, be reminded that there is history that needs to be taught. And while, yes, uh, some history is not always pretty, we still have to be reminded that, number one, it happened, the incident. Uh, secondly, we need to be reminded that there's always potential for an incident to occur that might bear a resemblance to what happened in the past. And third, we need to do everything there is to, to the best of our abilities to learn about the incident so that it doesn't happen again, not only in the present, but down the road in the future. I um, got something in the mail the other day from uh, the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, and I um, went about writing a um, a check to the foundation. I do that usually once or twice a year um, because I, I do believe it's important to uh, support um, a foundation that not only um, it, that's not too far from where I live and where I can my wife and I can visit, but secondly, it's important to be able to um, provide what you can because it's more than just uh, telling history. It's more than just seeing exhibits and artifacts it's really about educating um, the greater public not just for the present but future generations and and I'm not trying to um, sound negative I'm not trying to talk smack or get it into anything political but it did disappoint me to hear that a number of uh, people in the United States um, don't know as much about their history like they should however I am very very uh, delighted to know that um, a good number of my listeners are from the United States, 90%. So I want to thank all of you whom have been listening, whom live in the United States, and who uh, whom have been avidly uh, listening to my podcast, uh, Book Topic Discussions. I want to thank you, and I hope that you all continue to uh, listen to what I have to uh, present with, to you all, as well as getting the word out to others. And for all the other nations out there, I mean, I'm, I'm in 70, besides being in the United States, I'm in 73 other nations, so that gives me a total of 74. Uh, I must, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to brag or flaunt, but I do feel as though I have been able to um, make a difference, and the goal is to continue to do that. But I want to thank all of you for, um, for making this happen. So continue to... Um, Continue to listen, uh, continue to get that word out, and continue to uh, realize that uh, no matter where we go in terms of these uh, book topic discussions, 
that we can still learn something that is worth um, the time and energy to learn about that's relevant and take it into a setting that um, where you can uh, pass on history to those whom um, whom have some knowledge about the subject but don't have as much as they did previously. So anyways, I think it's fair to say that we better get this show on the road with this uh, podcast uh, episode uh, segment to a signal victory, the, the Lake Erie campaign. So let's let's embark on our um, on our leadoff question for this uh, episode. Uh, whom did uh, Navy Secretary Paul Hamilton select to become the Great Lakes Fleet Commander? Some of you may know this guy's name. I have uh, heard about his name before, but uh, for those of you who don't know his name, um, he happens to be um, known as uh, Isaac Chauncey. Last name spelled C-H-A-U-N-C-E-Y. So when Isaac Chauncey is um, selected to become the Great Lakes Fleet Commander, his um, rank is that of Captain what I found unique about Captain Isaac Chauncey is that um, he has um, advantages to his side based upon his experiences in the Navy, but he also has some areas that he's not strong in. However, he has enough experience to make up for whatever he's not proficient in. So although Captain Chauncey uh, lacked sufficient experience regarding combat operations, that is, going engaging in actual warfare, Captain Chauncey made up for it based upon his overall experiences in, when it came to ship construction and maintenance, that is, the maintenance of the ships. Given he had previously overseen the New York Navy Yard, I bet many of you all are very familiar with the New York Navy Yard. And as a matter of fact, folks, the New York Navy Yard was first built in 1801, the same year that Thomas Jefferson became our nation's, became the United States' third president. The New York Navy Yard, folks, didn't become um, officially used until 1806, um, just a couple years after the Lewis and Clark expedition began, and uh, 1806 was the same year that the um, expedition itself was coming to an end. The New York Navy Yard, folks, was in full use from a military standpoint from 1806 to 1966. So, folks, that's almost 60 years from the time that it ceased to uh, no longer be of um, use for the military. Uh, the New York Navy Yard is located in Brooklyn, and about nine years ago, folks, in 2014, it was added to the National Register of Historic Places. So what 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 exists where the New York Navy Yard uh, was um, running so strong for 160 years? Well, I can tell you this much. It's not desolate. Nowadays, the facility houses industrial and commercial um, complex, um, it, it houses industrial and commercial complex facilities run by the New York City government pertaining to non-maritime affairs. So it's good to know that it's not uh, sitting desolate. Although structures have come and gone, at least we can say that, um, that the area is not desolate, but nonetheless it's a good reminder 
of what once existed for about 160 years. Captain Chauncey's experiences, that is, via shipbuilding from New York Navy Yard, would be paramount in going about constructing naval bases at Lakes Ontario and Erie. So remember, folks, we can't put all of our eggs in one basket here with putting just uh, one naval base at, at one of the lakes. We have to have uh, two naval bases. And it's smart. I mean, for one, Ontario and Erie do uh, connect with one another. Now, at this time in 1812, we haven't um, gotten to that point just yet with, um, with all of the Great Lakes being able to be connected to one another. But Ontario and Erie uh, do border one another. Now, uh, whereabouts did uh, government officials want Captain Chauncey to concentrate his energies on lake-wise? Lake Erie. Leaders in Washington, D.C. saw control of Lake Erie being an upper lake essential and going about retaking Detroit via ground journey to protecting all settlements along the lake's southern shores from, Brit from Indian and British raids. So when I think of Lake Erie's southern shores, to me the southern shores really are, um, when I think of and this is just me, when I think of Lake Erie's southern shores, I think of uh, the waters around uh, Toledo, uh, Cleveland, uh, Sandusky, Marblehead, Ohio, to uh, Lake Erie Islands on the western end, uh, being Kelly's Island, uh, South Bass, uh, Middle Bass, uh, North Bass Island, just some of the many um, Lake Erie Islands. But I could see why the government needs uh, the southern shores of Lake Erie to be um, essentially protected because if they're not essentially protected, then they are going to be all the more vulnerable to Indian and British raids coming from the north, most notably uh, the Michigan Territory. The Navy Department uh, placed high expectations on Captain Chauncey as officials in Washington expected multiple vessels be built within a short time frame. Well, when I think of multiple vessels, it might be fair to say we're talking a dozen vessels at best or just over. And, you know, it's one thing to want to meet a guideline within a short time frame. But the bigger question is going to be, do you have the manpower to be able to go about building, say, a dozen or more vessels, say, within a month's time? Well, Captain Chauncey... What he's got going for him now is that he's stationed in between Sackett's Harbor, New York, on Lake Ontario, along with Buffalo on Lake Erie. And I bet most of you probably aren't familiar with Sackett's Harbor. Um, my wife and I, we went to uh, up into New York State three years ago. We vacationed in New York State's Thousand Islands region. What's unique about the Thousand Islands is that it's it was considered to be the first uh, getaway destination for the um, rich or the elite in the greater American society in the uh, post-Civil War era. When I think of uh, those whom were able to travel to the Thousand Islands, uh, most notably starting around uh, the time that the post-Civil War era would have begun or what we think of as Reconstruction, I tend to think of men like George Pullman, whom um, was responsible for designing the Pullman rail car. 
Yes, George Pullman was a very, very frequent visitor to the Thousand Islands. Matter of fact, uh, those whom vacationed in the, in the Thousand Islands uh, represented new money. They came from um, places like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They came from Cleveland. They came from Detroit. Uh, they came from um, even from New York City, believe it or not. And they would have come even as... Um, they would have come even from uh, Northwest PA, uh, Erie as well. So the Thousand Islands uh, rep definitely represented a, uh, a good portion of the uh, Gilded Age that went from 1870 to 1915. Uh, and if you uh, do get a chance to visit, it's, it's very well worth uh, the time and energy. My, my wife and I would go back there in a heartbeat. Uh, if you visit most notably Bolt and uh, Singer Castles, you definitely have to get a tour of those castles. Those castles are just uh, beyond phenomenal. And in case some of you are wondering why do they call it the Thousand Islands region, well, I can tell you this much, folks. Uh, Thousand Island dressing got started in the Thousand Islands region. It, uh, the region is north of Syracuse, uh, starting in uh, Watertown and making its way all the way into uh, St. Lawrence County, uh, which is home to... Uh, Villages such as uh, Messina and um, and uh, Ogdensburg, but yes, the Thousand Islands. Um, one story has it that the um, that all the uh, relish bits and the dressing represent all of the islands. Um, believe it or not, folks, they know that there are a total of eighteen hundred and sixty-four islands in the Thousand Islands region of New York, and in order for for an island to be an island, it has to stay afloat 365 days a year, and it must um, be um, surrounded by uh, one or more trees at best. So there are a lot of uh, small islands along the St. Lawrence River, which is the um, the main um, the major uh, river uh, riverway for the Thousand Islands, and there are lots of uh, small islands along the um, along the uh, heart of the uh, St. Lawrence River. So anyway, Sackett's Harbor was a vital uh, post on uh, Lake Ontario, and it just so happens, folks, that a lot of construction went about taking place along Lake Ontario in terms of, uh, per, in terms of uh, building a fleet, or what we call a flotilla. So construction along Lake Ontario um, went much smoother, given for one, a shipyard at Sackett's Harbor got built, resulting in around, get this folks, 3,000 workers building an assembly of warships. 3,000 workers all in Sackett's Harbor. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, where in the world are you going to find lodging for these 3,000 people? I mean, I can tell you Sackett's Harbor is a small little village in today's time, and it is very well worth visiting. It was incorporated back in 1801, uh, the same year that uh, Thomas Jefferson became president. Uh, Sackett's Harbor is named after Augustus uh, Sackett, whom was a uh, well-known New York businessman, uh, financier, and um, oversaw uh, construction of the New York Central Railroad get built. So, yes, you've got 3,000 workers in Sackett's Harbor. They are building an assembly of warships, the majority of these workers, though, came from New York City. Uh, as for Lake Erie, Lake Erie, you know, while there's a lot of progress going on at Sackett's Harbor um, on Lake Ontario, uh, Lake Erie, on the other hand, is lacking sound footing, largely in part because 
officials, or I should say government officials, aren't 100% sure as to where the upper base unit needs to be built. They've got to figure this out here soon, because the last thing they don't want to risk is the uh, British launching a surprise attack on Lake Erie, um, and then government officials are scrambling to defend whatever um, whatever they can defend so that so that we don't lose um, we don't lose any more men that we don't lose that we did, we don't lose any more than what has already happened. Let's put it that way. Whom did uh, Captain Chauncey turn to for determining the proper site on Lake Erie where boats and vessels got built and repaired? His name is Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott. Well, Lieutenant Elliott earned the eventual right or duty in overseeing construction of the U.S. Naval Fleet on Lake Erie. The tasks um, that he partook in started out from uh, purchasing vessels, equipment, accessing timber to build half a dozen gunboats. So we're talking about six gunboats, folks, including living arrangements for nearly 300 men. Man, I tell you, finding living arrangements for nearly 300 men, that's challenging. Um, you know, there, there might be a tavern or two nearby, but those taverns alone can't accommodate 300 men. They might be lucky if they could accommodate 15 or 20, depending on the size of the tavern and how many rooms the tavern uh, keeper himself um, owns or has to uh, rent out, to say the least. So, not only does uh, Jesse Duncan Elliott, Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott, have to um, oversee uh, living arrangements for nearly 300 men, he has to uh, go about uh, go about ensuring that a building, or I should say, a makeshift uh, magazine or a temporary storage facility, can be. Um, constructed to where all essential provisions are secured so that they don't fall into the hands of the enemy. So it's one thing, yes, to build a fleet, but you also have to have living arrangements for those whom are going to partake in the building of the vessels. And you also have to have a, um, a magazine house. And now we're not talking magazines, folks, but for your essential provisions like your gunpowder, your muskets, rifles, Anything else that you know is, is essential that you do not want falling into the hands of the enemy. Lieutenant Elliot is also instructed with acquiring and sharing information about all British activities on Lake Erie to reporting statistical figures on U.S. roads, building sites, provisions. Why roads? Well, Lieutenant Elliot's got to figure out, hey, where are we going to, um, what are the best roads available to transport goods that would be coming into Sackett's Harbor? I need to know what roads are available. Remember, folks, in 1812, there is no Erie Canal just yet. Although the New York State Legislature um, is still debating on an Erie Canal, they, many in New York want the Erie Canal, but it's not, um, how do I say it? It's not uh, been officially laid out just yet. In other words, the first um, stones have not been laid out for constructing the canal, but it still is a dream of many 
in New York State to um, to get this uh, natural, this man-made wonder built. But uh, but unfortunately, it will have to wait until this uh, conflict with Great Britain ends. Jesse Elliott, uh, what I found interesting about him is that he was born in 1782, so he would have been born a year after uh, the British surrender at Yorktown. He would have been a, he would have been born a year before the treaty, the 1783 Treaty of Paris, which officially ended the war. So Jesse Elliott first enlisted in the United States Navy as a midshipman. Now. The United States Naval Academy's uh, mascot, or their name, is the midshipman. Anybody know what a midshipman is? A midshipman is an officer of lower rank. In other words, when you go to the Naval Academy, you start out as an officer of lower rank, but you work your way up to the top. It doesn't happen overnight, but you got to work your way up in order to, um, in order to. Um, graduate from being a midshipman to, say, a colonel, a lieutenant colonel, for example. Jesse Elliott, uh, uh, he uh, enlisted in the United States Navy as a midshipman around April of 1804. So if he uh, enlisted as a, a midshipman around April of 1804, he would have been um, just shy of 22 years of age. He saw action during the Barbary Wars between 1805 and 1807 along the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Barbary Wars, those were uh, wars involving um, pirates from uh, Tripoli in uh, North Africa. And believe it or not, folks, at the start of the 19th century, American sailors, not only did they have to contend with the British on the high seas in terms of being um, forced into impressment, but American sailors were captured on the high seas by um, by pirates, and many of them never came home alive. They um, something tells me that I just have to wonder if the pirates uh, were working on the side with the British and engaging in their own form of impressment. But we do have to keep in mind that there were plenty of dangers uh, when it came to sailing the waters even in the 19th century and before. And it's often, we often think, oh, it was, it must have been pretty safe to have sailed along the waters. No, it wasn't. You, there was no guarantee that you'd come home alive, no matter what your destination was, but you help, but you had to worry about a lot of things. I mean, you had to worry about whether or not um, your cargo would have been seized. You would have had to have worried about whether or not an enemy would have fired at you from the waters if you were considered an enemy to them. Um, I don't know how sailors did it, but they did it. I mean, they were making sacrifices. So, yes, uh, Jesse Duncan Elliott would have seen firsthand. Um, he probably saw firsthand many of his own comrades be captured by these um, Barbary pirates and be um, held hostage pretty much until they died. But in April of 1810, he became a lieutenant, which is his uh, rank at this time. Now, uh, what fellow New Yorker had superb familiarity with the Lake Erie region? He was uh, Congressman and Brigadier General Peter Buell Porter. Lieutenant Elliott conferred with Brigadier General Porter as to the whereabouts on Lake Erie 
that a naval fleet could get uh, constructed. Well, both men did their homework, and they agreed upon a place called uh, Black Rock, uh, which is a few, few couple of miles down the Niagara River from Lake Erie's eastern end. Black Rock I found to be very unique because, to me, it offered some great um, advantages. But at the same time, I also uh, was forced to learn that Black Rock also had some disadvantages. However, um, Brigadier General uh, Peter Porter and um, Lieutenant uh, Jesse Duncan Elliott, they are really sold on Black Rock. And they want to be able to go, they want to be able to relay to Washington that they have uh, struck at gold and that they have uh, found the right place where uh, shipbuilding can be, uh, can go about being um, conducted on uh, Lake Erie's waters. So the advantages for Black Rock are that they had, um, there were already shipbuilding facilities in place. And this was largely in part because Brigadier General Peter Porter himself owned these shipping facilities. It pays to have connections. There, Black Rock had a strong harbor and was fitted out with uh, stations or facilities that uh, enabled uh, lodging for all sailors and shipbuilders. Great, this is great now uh, because uh, Lieutenant Elliot won't have to worry about building any more facilities for the time being He's already got all these things in place, so hey, I mean, Congress can, um, we might be able to save Congress some money here. However, the advantages, that, the disadvantages that BlackRock had are the following. How about a strong four mile per hour current? And at four miles per hour, folks, it doesn't seem like a whole lot to be worried about, but this strong four mile per hour current um hindered access into Lake Erie. So in other words, the powerful uh, wind current per its directions could um, could have probably have posed as a tearjerker for boats trying to make their way in and out of the uh, harbor. It doesn't take much sometimes for currents to uh, do things to a boat that uh, most of us would find to be uh, unexpected, but yet it happens. The British... Uh, the, the British uh, fort, being that of Fort Erie, has multiple guns capable of destroying enemy vessels. So we're not far away from the enemy, folks. And, you know, if we're not careful, the enemy will um, launch attacks on us and will pretty much deplete whatever we have that's available uh, vessel-wise. Uh, what was taking shape in Washington, D.C. while Captain Chauncey and Lieutenant Elliott were weighing in options as to where to set up shop on Lake Erie. A fellow by the name of uh, Daniel Dobbins, whom was a, an experienced merchant captain and had strong knowledge of the Upper Lakes, he met directly with Navy Secretary Paul Hamilton and President Madison to discuss where the best location would be for constructing the Lake Erie fleet. So Daniel Dobbins, yes, he's a smart guy, and yes, it's great that he's an experienced merchant captain, but yet he's talking to Navy Secretary Paul Hamilton and President Madison about where the best location is is going to be for constructing a lake for the constructing the Lake Erie fleet. But what we don't realize, or most of us don't know, is that Daniel Dobbins 
is not of the same rank as Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott or that of uh, Brigadier General Peter Porter. He's on the lower tier. So why should someone of the, on the lower tier end be exerting his influence amongst the administration when that um, influence of power, or I wouldn't say influence of power, but when the influence and knowledge should be relayed by such men as Lieutenant Elliott and uh, Brigadier General Porter? Well, Daniel Dobbins is a native of Erie, Pennsylvania, and he went about recommending Presque Isle Bay in Erie, Pennsylvania, as the site for building the Lake Erie fleet. Well, the Madison administration agreed with Dobbins, and because they agreed with Dobbins, they uh, gave him a sailing master post in the Navy, which meant that he would oversee the construction take place at Presque Isle. Now think about it, folks. We don't have any email. There's no there's no telephone in 1812, uh, 1813 to call up uh, Peter Porter, or I should say Brigadier General Porter, as well as uh, Lieutenant Elliott, and say, hey, look, we've got a change in plans. We need to notify you all of this. Uh, we would like to get feedback from you all, but we do feel like at the same time that, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time on our side, um, and this is uh, the new... Uh, course direction we're going in. Well, if I were Captain Chauncey and Lieutenant Elliot, and even that of uh, Peter Porter, Brigadier General Porter, would you be stunned by the sudden change of plans? I would. Well, why would you be stunned by the change of plans? Well, Jesse Elliot. Well, for one, Jesse Elliott and Daniel Dobbins went about writing hostile letters to one another regarding uh, Presque Isle's regarding uh, Presque Isle Bay's suitability. Lieutenant Elliott knew Presque Isle Bay did not have strong um, water depth levels, which meant large vessels would have a hard time coming in and out of Lake Erie. All right, if you were um, Lieutenant Elliott and you, and you already know this information and you are relaying this to Daniel Dobbins, wouldn't you think it, Daniel Dobbins, wouldn't it be smart to say that maybe Daniel Dobbins would, would think to himself, hold on a second, um, maybe I rushed to judgment here. Maybe I better let Washington know that we need to rethink this. No, that didn't happen. Okay, and because it didn't happen, we know that Daniel Dobbins is below Lieutenant Elliott, and at this time, um, Isaac Chauncey uh, has gotten a promotion, rank promotion. He's He goes from captain to now commodore. Although, um, yes, Isaac Chauncey gets a promotion, that's great, but the orders from Washington, D.C. seem to have taken priority over what had been given previously at Black Rock, including Sackett's Harbor. So all along we had been given the clearance that, um, that a naval base would be built at Sackett's Harbor, and it seemed as though uh, Black Rock was going to be the ideal spot, but that was in the eyes of uh, Lieutenant Elliott and Commodore Chauncey. And even the same for Brigadier General Porter, 
But now all of a sudden, Daniel Dobbins's actions have now set off a storm for what would lie ahead during the Lake Erie campaign in terms of uh, communication, in terms of uh, competition, uh, I would say, with regards to superiority. It's, you know, I hate to say this, but we have too many hands in the pot. It's one thing, yes, for people to throw in their suggestions and ideas. But at the same time, I understand that President Madison is desperate for um, better uh, results, given that he's, you know, his administration dealt with some humiliating uh, strings of uh, losses in the Michigan Territory from Fort Mackinac and uh, Fort Detroit, including uh, Fort Dearborn in what we know as present-day Chicago, Illinois. Of course, thank heavens we held on to Fort Wayne um, like we did. But even that alone can't uh, justify what we're going up against now. I think if you know if you're President Madison, you pretty much have to um, go with whatever um, you you have to go with whatever um, your gut instinct is telling you. But at the same time, if President Madison were to write a letter to Lieutenant Elliot, Commodore Cha- Commodore Chauncey, and Brigadier General Porter, who knows how long it would take. In other words, it could be two weeks at best before those men received the letter from Madison saying, uh, we have a change in plans. And even if that were done, there's still going to be uh, resentment, and on one hand, rightfully so. But it just goes to show you that um, the communication, even at this time, in the middle of a crisis and a time of war, communication is not being uh, properly relayed to all channels while it is being relayed, it's just that um, we're giving, we're going with the man. There's nothing, I don't think there's anything wrong with Daniel Dobbins. He knows some stuff, but I think if what the Madison administration should have done was they should have said, hey, look, we need to relay this information to, um, to Commodore Chauncey. We need to let Lieutenant Elliott and Brigadier General Porter know what's going to change and that we need one or maybe two of them to come to Washington immediately or bring um, an officer below them to come so that um, we're all on the same page. But then again, we don't have a whole lot of time on our side, so sometimes these decisions have to be, have to be made at a split, um, at a split um, moment's notice. And yes, it's going to mean upsetting some officers on the higher end of the rank status, but but if you if you know that you have to get something resolved and you don't have the time on your side, then you just then you got to go with it. Uh, despite issues involving communications from Washington D.C., what did Lieutenant Jesse Elliott go about conducting come October of 1812? Now this is what I find to be very daring and very bold and rewarding on the part of an officer who knows that look. We can't go. We can't expect to go into uh, a hardcore battle tomorrow with the British, because if we do, we may not come away with a with a navy intact. But we've got to we've got to do something to uh, shake them up. It may not be a slam dunk or a grand slam out of the ballpark, but we've got to do something to sh- start rattling their nerves. So on October 9th of 1812, Lieutenant Elliot, along with Army Captain Nathan Towson, 
led a joint expedition with 50 sailors and 50 army regulars, resulting in a surprise capture of two British brigs, being the HMS Caledonia and HMS Detroit, both of which were anchored at Fort Erie. The Caledonia folks went uh, to eventually went to an American port, while uh, Detroit had an uphill uh, fight where both sides fought for her. Um, and while the Americans did um, take Detroit, she was badly damaged. But what the Americans did, American forces did, and this was probably the smart thing to do, they ended up burning Detroit. I know it sounds crazy, folks, but by burning Detroit, the British are now, they, they are already minus one ship, but they are already another, they are already minus another ship that is, um, that in their eyes, they cannot recoup, they cannot, um, they cannot recapture, or simply they just cannot resalvage. That is, they can't rebuild it from uh, where it uh, might currently stand in terms of its appearance. Uh, Lieutenant Elliott's expedition did not change the balance of power on Lake Erie's waters, but what do you think it might have provided? To me, it provided hope. It provided a huge boost of hope for American forces, which had endured nothing but defeat in the early going to the War of 1812. Like I mentioned earlier, you have strings of defeat in the Michigan Territory with Forts Mackinac and Detroit. And then the um, fall at Fort Dearborn in uh, present-day Chicago. So anything that can be done to rattle the British Navy at this point, it may not be a grand slam out of the park, but it's better than nothing. And Lieutenant Elliott's actions from October 9th of 1812, folks, along the Niagara River resulted in his emerging as a national hero. Congressman Henry Clay of Kentucky, whom uh, spearheaded uh, Congress's movements not only for um, going to war with uh, Britain, but he uh, helped spearhead Congress's movements behind giving Lieutenant Elliot a sword for his daring mission. January of 1813 saw 13 um, British sailing vessels including a dozen bateaux at Amherstburg along the Upper Lakes, so that's uh, 25 uh, ships total, while the United States had only six total in terms of sailing vessels. However, the capture of the Caledonia by Lieutenant Elliot's forces, it did startle the British. It startled British Major General Sir Isaac Brock, to the point where his forces now started paying more attention to the United States Navy on the Upper Lakes. In other words, Isaac Brock now might be in for a rude awakening, and now he's beginning to realize that, well, maybe the United States does have a force that we need to uh, reckon with. Their army is weak, but I'm not so sure about their Navy. And folks, early on in this war... The Navy is going to be the one that is saving us. I know this because uh, US, USS Constitution, a.k.a. Old Ironsides, um, scored uh, a couple of um, unprecedented victories along the waters. 
Uh, I know that she defeated a British uh, vessel known as HMS Gruyere, and that did send uh, shockwaves into the halls of uh, Parliament, as well as to um, British um, war officers, um, not only in the United States uh, along uh, the Great Lakes waters, but it sent shockwaves to uh, King George III, uh, as well as to um, cabinet members of Parliament. So, and that, you know, yes, here this um, country, the United States, whom declared her in political independence from us uh, 30 years earlier, now all of a sudden has a navy. You know, here we are impressing her men left and right, but yet now they are putting up a fight with us. They are actually beating us on the water. So, it to me this is a huge uh, shakeup. If you are, um, if you are someone say like Major General uh, Sir Isaac Brock, now you have to wonder what can I do to uh, keep the um, advantage to my side, to where I can um, let the let the uh, United States Navy officials know that okay, you know, yes, you may have had your moment of glory, but we'll see who really has true power on these waters. Now, during uh, the early start or the beginning of 1813, whom did Commodore Isaac Chauncey appoint as commander of Lake Erie? How about Oliver Hazard Perry? Oliver Hazard Perry, folks, when he attains uh, the title of uh, Master Commandant, or the title rank of Master Commandant, he did so before he even reached the age of 30. He was born on August 23rd of 1785, two years after the 1783 Treaty of Paris was signed, officially ending the Revolutionary War. He was born in uh, South Kingstown, Rhode Island, into a prominent naval and political family. He is the son of Captain Christopher Raymond Perry, an older brother to Commodore Matthew C. Perry. And on April 7th of 1799, Oliver Hazard Perry began his official naval career as a midshipman at age 13. Folks, can you imagine, uh, for you uh, men out there, I should say, can you imagine if you were um, in Oliver Hazard Perry's shoes and you began your career, your life's work, at age 13? Well, you have to keep in mind, folks, uh, Children didn't live to be old back then, so when they reached the age of 10, as I've said many of times before, and I'll tell you again, that when children reached the age of 10, they really were considered adults. Uh, many had believed that if a child lived to the age of 10, that he or she had uh, successfully fought off uh, prevalent diseases that were known to um, strike children at uh, very uh, early ages, given that there really weren't any uh, vaccinations out there to cure such things of the day like smallpox, uh, typhoid fever, uh, yellow fever, measles, mumps, um, stuff that can, for the most part, can be cured uh, today, but maybe not full, but maybe not so eradicated, with the exception of smallpox. Uh, smallpox was eradicated uh, worldwide back in 1980. But um, I can't imagine being in Oliver Hazard Perry's shoes at age 13. He begins his official naval career. He goes aboard the USS General Green, which his father commanded. As Perry got older, he served in the Barbary Wars between 1801 and 1806, 
1802, the same year that uh, the United States established its first um, official military academy, Institute of Learning, being West Point. In 1802, uh, Oliver Perry became a lieutenant. He would go about directing construction of gunboats at uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Of course, when I think of Newport, I think of all those famous mansions that lie along the, um, I think it's uh, Narragansett Bay, that uh, the mansions at Newport that were so uh, heavily, um, that were uh, very um, well known, most notably uh, during the Gilded Age that went from 1870 to 1915. And many of those mansions are still there from what I've been told. Besides um, supervising all shipbuilding activities along Lake Erie, what else was Oliver Perry interested in pursuing? How about fighting and construction? Given he was promoted Master Commandant in September 1812. Although Oliver Perry was the lead supervisor of all shipbuilding work on Lake Erie, an opportunity for combat action presented itself available at Fort George along the entryway of the Niagara River. Perry joined up with Commodore Chauncey and Daniel Dobbins via a four-oared boat northward to Buffalo. Well, it seems as though Commodore Chauncey and Daniel Dobbins are putting aside their differences to work for the common good, and this is a good thing, at Lake Ontario, Perry became persuasive in overseeing both the Army and Navy commanders proceed forward in an all-out assault on Fort George to be conducted by Colonel Winfield Scott's troops. The American Army, by this point, folks, stands around 4,000 per regular infantry. The, the plan was this, and I think this was a very, very smart plan, the forces were to be divided into four units, or I should say groups, with each landing in succession of the other. Um, of the other. So in other words, we're not going to put all of our eggs in one basket, but we're going to have uh, troops be landed in, um, in waves. Troops were landed by a dozen schooners, which included one or more cannon for means of uh, protection, two large vessels being the Madison and Oneida, would go about confronting the enemy batteries, or I should say fortified walls. May 25, 1813, the U.S. Uh, naval bombardment of Fort George began, resulting in multiple buildings, most notably log buildings within the fort, getting burnt down to where many women and children were forced to seek shelter elsewhere within the greater fort's walls. You know, we do have to be reminded, folks, that when we are seeing a battle take place, it's not always uh, those in military uniform. We do have to remember that um, families are joining armies. Families are accompanying armies because they have really nowhere, nowhere else to go. For many families, um, the wife's husband is a part of the military. On the other hand, if the wife's husband has passed away, say from a previous battle, or died uh, from, say, a disease, or died from his um, wounds, then the uh, wife and her children would be allowed to, um, as long as they met, say, the government requirements, they would have been allowed to have uh, met, or they would have been allowed to have been a part of the, um, of the greater um, 
military uh, unit force. It would have uh, required the wife or the widow to uh, take on such duties in the um, in the uh, military unit, such as uh, changing out the bed sheets, uh, washing laundry, perhaps being a cook, uh, doing whatever uh, tasks there were, not only to support herself, but that of her children. So in other words, yes, she may be considered destitute, she and her family are, but their um, state of, um, their over, it might be fair to say that their state of uh, destituteness, if that's even a word, I don't know if it is, so um, correct, so if it's not, then uh, pardon me for uh, mentioning that, uh, but if their, um, their, their state of um, disparity um, wasn't so bad, if that's a more um, better way for me to, um, to label it, is that if, um, Yes, it'd be one thing for a, a mother and her children to be destitute, but if they are allowed, but if the mother is allowed to work in the military and perform an assortment of duties that would um, not only go towards supporting herself and that of her children, then she would be a little bit better off than what she, than what she would have been um, previously. So yes, we do have to be reminded that battles are not are not only involving just the soldiers. But they do involve uh, those uh, families that are looking for shelter because they have nowhere else to go. If they stay behind, they could be uh, victims themselves. So yes, many women and children have sought shelter elsewhere within the greater fort's walls. Now, Brigadier General John Vincent, whom was the lead commander of the British forces on the Niagara River... um, he had a thousand regular soldiers under his command. He knew that an assault was uh, he knew that an assault on the fort was coming, but yet he just did not know what direction it would be arriving from. So if you don't know what direction it's arriving from, it's just you're really in a bad place. I wouldn't say you're in a bad place. You're really stuck between a rock and a hard place. But what he does do with the short amount of time that he has is that he goes about placing the majority of his regular soldiers along the Niagara River, thinking that that's where uh, the enemy is going to strike, right along the Niagara River. But it's going to be the opposite. May 27th, U.S. Army and Navy forces go all out with assaulting Fort George, inflicting heavy losses. Oliver Perry, going forward, was able to relocate multiple armed schooners from Black Rock, being at uh, Buffalo, now further um, onto uh, Lake Erie. So, yes, uh, Black Rock being not far from Lake Erie, um, Oliver Perry, folks, um, yes, we might think of him as being at one battle that we have uh, been told for years, but what we do have to be reminded is that he was um, doing other things that will lead up to what happens in September of 1813. And so Perry's leadership here, folks, by persuading, um, by persuading, um, how do I say it? By devising the plan that he uh, did in terms of uh, persuading, by being persuasive and overseeing that the Army and Navy their commanders go all out in an assault on Fort George. That was very bold. 
had Perry not exercised um, solid leadership, given though he, considering he was not the lead commander, but given that he had not taken the initiative to do this, maybe we would have seen a different outcome. So it's fair to say that even at the Battle of uh, Fort George, that Oliver Perry was at the right place at the right time to help make a difference for the above, uh, for the commanding officers above, most notably being uh, Colonel Winfield Scott, including Commodore um, Isaac Chauncey. Well, that wraps it up for this uh, podcast uh, segment episode to a signal victory. But when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be... Um, we're going to be learning about uh, the Royal Navy coming to the lakes. We're going to learn who uh, becomes the official um, commander, that is the official British commander of the uh, Upper Lakes. We will also uh, be learning about, um, about um, we'll get into learning about building and manning the fleets. Well, thank you for your time as always, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Take care.